So this evening we're going to start with a, a short series on, on mental health. Um, and it's, it's actually something that we've noticed has been progressing over the last while, particularly coming out of COVID, um, when we spent lots of time by ourselves in our own houses, in our own heads, um, and coming out of it now, it seems like there's been a, a, a rise in the number of, of folk who are struggling with mental health issues. Now, when we talk about mental health, it includes things like our emotional, our psychological, our social well-being, um, and it affects how we think, um, and how we feel, and how we act. It, it also helps determine how we handle stress um, and how we relate to one another. Um, and also, it helps us to make healthy choices. Now, mental health is, as we know, important for us at every life stage, from when we are little boys and little girls, um, all the way through to when we are really old people. But unfortunately now that the sad reality is that the majority of South Africans will never receive mental health care when they suffer from it. And unfortunately there's also a limited awareness of its importance out there. And so this evening as, as we're going to kind of talk about it, um, we're going to consider this evening the spiritual or the biblical side of it, and then next week we'll consider practical approaches to care um, and how we can help one another and what assistance there is out there around mental health as people who follow after Jesus. Now, some of you might actually be wondering what does the gospel actually have to say about mental health? Um, isn't this something that um, should be reserved for people like doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists um, and other healthcare professionals? And so you might also wonder, is there even something that the Bible has to say about our mental health? Um, uh, but, um, but the fact of the matter is that the Bible does speak into it. And the gospel does speak into, it even reaches into that. Issues like depression, post-traumatic stress, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety even, um, and other things. Now, I am not a doctor. Um, and my understanding of many of the aspects of mental health is limited. And so next week, we, when we do have more time for interaction, um, Dr. Parker, <laughs> she said she'd be, she'd be willing to sit and help us talk more about some of the issues that we are suffering with. I mean, I know as a pastor who sit and listen to people that there are many people in Pinelands who are struggling with mental health issues. Now, as we start out, I'd like us to take a look at a, at a quick case study, as it were, of a, of a character in the Bible. Now, we, we'll read just a few verses from 1 Kings chapter 19, and it involves the prophet Elijah. 
But before we read those few verses, um, we need just a little bit of context to what we're going to read. Otherwise, it won't really make much sense to what we are wanting to focus on this evening. So, so Elijah, he was a Hebrew prophet from the, the 9th century BC, so that's 900 years before Jesus. And he was living at a time when Israel was divided by civil war. They were fighting amongst one another. So there were two tribes in the south of the country who were faithful to Yahweh, and then there were ten tribes in the north of the country who were unfaithful to Yahweh, very basically. And the, at the time, there was this king who was ruling. His name was King Ahab, and he was a very weak king, very petty guy. And um, his wife, the queen, her name was Jezebel. And um, she was a, a Canaanite follower. Um, she was a Baal worshipper. Who, um, and, and at that time, during this time when um, Elijah was ministering, Jezebel was actually killing off prophets of Yahweh. Um, and so Elijah was a prophet to these ten tribes in the north. So Elijah was at work in a very difficult, challenging context as someone who was trying to get people to turn back to Yahweh and to turn away from Baal. So, so in the north of Israel, the people had turned their backs on Yahweh and they were worshipping Baal widely and they, had, they were set up for it. They had prophets. Um, they had places where people could go and worship Baal and they had a lot of support um, from uh, the King Ahab's wife, Jezebel. Um, who, as I mentioned, she was even going around killing off the prophets of Yahweh. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah had called, during all of this mess, Elijah, in trying to do what Yahweh is, is, is commanding him to do, he calls for a drought over the land, and this drought lasted for three years, which is a major thing. Um, in a place like, like Israel, in, a, in an agrarian society where people rely on water for their daily lives. And then at the end of this three years, if we can remember the story, um, Elijah then calls all of Israel together and he calls King Ahab as well. All of these 450 prophets of Baal, he calls all of them to the top of Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel was one of these places where worship to Baal would happen. You know, it was Baal's mountain. And so what Elijah was doing was he was actually challenging these prophets um, on their home ground. Um, and there's this dramatic story that we know in chapter 18 and verse 20 where an altar is built and Elijah says to these prophets of Baal, that you call on your God, and if your God sends down fire and ignites the altar, then we will bow down and worship your God. However, if your God doesn't do that, but Yahweh does that, then you will bow down and worship him. Um, and he says these things, and as we know, if you can recall the story, 
um, that's what happens. The 450 prophets of Baal, they pray from the morning. It's recorded there in, in chapter 18. They pray from the morning till the afternoon. Nothing happens. And then Elijah calls for water and he says, wet the altar three times. So Elijah has his altar there. He's got wood on it. He's got a bull as a sacrifice that had been cut up into pieces on the altar. And then he says, throw water. Throw water. Throw water. And then he prays to Yahweh and Yahweh sends fire. Um, an amazing story. They go down the mountain. Yeah, uh, uh, Elijah then slaughters all of these 450 prophets. He goes back up onto the top of the mountain. He prays to Yahweh again and he asks him to send rain. And guess what? He sends rain. Um, Elijah is involved there with miracle after miracle. And this, I think, was the high point of Elijah's career. He's just embarrassed 450 prophets in front of all of Israel. He had modeled for them real, true faith like they had never seen before. He prayed for rain, rain came. Miracle after miracle. So we can imagine how Elijah must have been viewed by people in that moment. They must have been in awe of this guy. And this is where we pick up the story. This is the, where the story starts from. Um, and we'll see what happens here to, to Elijah. And we'll read First Kings. We'll, we'll take it from the message version just so that we can just f f track with the story a little bit easier. So, is there someone who'd like to read that out for me, please? Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll even get with, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Bishop. Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God, take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Now, you know that the story continues on after that, you know? This is not where the story ends, but I want us just to stop for a moment here um, and just try and immerse ourselves in what it could be that Elijah might have been feeling or thinking in that moment. Because sometimes I think we gloss over the details when we read through Scripture. And perhaps we sometimes even are guilty of over-spiritualizing matters. Um, because one minute Elijah, he's on this high, you know? And the next he's scared to death and he's running for his life. And clearly something must have happened to Elijah's thought process in his mind. Something in his emotions, in his feelings, must have shifted in that moment. 
He possibly felt overwhelmed, anxious. He may have felt completely unable to cope, um, fearful, and there appears to have been when we, when we, as we track through the story, if we stop and just think about that for a moment, it appears to be, you know, there was a loss of this level-headed, faithful decision-making that we had seen up until that point. Um, whether it be short-term or long-term. You know, you find yourself on a high and everything is right in the world. You're excited, you're hyped up with your accomplishments, your relationships are in order, you feel on top of things, you know? Life, life is good. But then suddenly, all it takes is one negative moment or an instant to change all of that. And perhaps it could be something like a text from a friend or, or an email from, from a colleague at work or you see something upsetting on social media or, or in the news and it triggers for you possibly this emotional meltdown. What could be something deeper than that, you know? Something that sets you on a pathway of despair or anxiety or, or whatever. You just, you're off. You're in a fog. And this, this collapse that it feels like to you could be a momentary occurrence or it could be something that lasts weeks, months, sometimes even years. I think we have here in Elijah, in my opinion at least, a biblical example of someone whose mental health seems to have suffered during this season in his life where it seemed like things were manageable. Although, they, although so much appears to have been resting on Elijah, it seems like, you know, if we look at what happened before and the amazing miracles that, are, that he had performed, clearly Yahweh was with him. Clearly he seemed to be doing fine. But then all of a sudden it seems like the bottom falls out. This prophet, mightily used by God, finds himself lying under a bush out in the desert, praying on top of it that Yahweh would take his life, effectively wanting to end his life there. Despite everything, all of the accomplishments, all of the promise, the clear and present presence of God in his life, despite all of those things, he found himself there lying under a bush out in the desert. You know, according to the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, in South Africa there are 23 suicides a day and 230 serious attempts. Now that's almost one an hour. And, and those are only the ones that are reported that we know of. And some of the reasons that, that people give for, for finding themselves in a space like that, they would, they would describe things like a recent loss, 
some major disappointment that they experienced, a change in circumstances, possibly mental disorder, a physical illness that puts them on this major setback, um, or even the suicide of a family member, or a friend, or even a public figure. And then of course there's the always in the background financial issues or maybe a traumatic experience like a rape or an accident or something like that. And many of those who have traveled the difficult journey that leads them to considering taking their own lives have suffered seasons of depression or they've just found themselves completely unable to cope with the challenges of living in this broken world. There's also this uh, new research paper from last year, in fact, by the Wits Medical Research Council saying that in South Africa, more than a quarter of South Africans suffer from depression. That means one in four, and just look next to you. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Those are, those are some alarming figures. And that includes followers of Jesus. Now, when we think about our mental health as, as followers of Jesus, we sometimes find ourselves a bit confused as believers because we question if this is even something that we should be going through. Is this something that I should actually even be struggling with or wrestling with? You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I've got Jesus here. What's this? I shouldn't even be, be hassling with these kinds of things. Um, and, and then, of course, if you're on the outside looking in, um, we sometimes demean those who suffer from the effects of struggling with mental health. And so we think that those people who are struggling with those issues, maybe someone who's going through a season of depression or anxiety, we should say, no, these, you, just, you just gotta pull yourself together, man. You know what, you, you gotta do a study through the book of Psalms and, and you'll be fine, you'll be good to go. Um, and it seems to be like there's this general ignorance in the sense that we, we just don't understand enough concerning mental health when compared to other aspects of our lives, other aspects of our being. And the truth of the matter is that we are in fact very complex beings, unlike any other living creatures. We are each made up of this union of a physical body with an immaterial mind and spirit. And while each of those aspects is separate, in some sense, they are connected and they affect one another, whether we like it or not. And scripture actually confirms this for us. Moses writes in Deuteronomy, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. The psalmist mentions it. Jesus actually echoes um, Moses' words there when he says, Love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. At one level, we exist in a physical body so that we can interact with the physical world around us, you know. Our hearts pump, our stomachs and our intestines digest, our muscles contract and relax, our lungs inhale and exhale, and 
our brains have cells that fire and send signals, we, we are a created masterpiece. Let me tell you that. A miracle of skin, bone, blood formed from the dust. But at the, at the same time, we are also so much more than that. We perceive, we think and reason, we pray, and then there's also this immaterial, this non-physical aspect to who we are. What some call our mind or our soul. Now this question of what the mind is, is something that has baffled philosophers and scientists for many, many years. Are our thoughts and our perceptions simply the product of this neurochemical changes and electrical discharges um, in our brain? Or, 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 or is our mind something more? Is it, is it something or just immaterial? Yeah, most people believe that the truth is, is somewhere in the middle. The functioning of our brain is integral to the existence of our minds. But that alone isn't, I think, sufficient to explain it. Likewise, to imagine our mind as completely separate and unrelated to the physical doesn't seem, doesn't seem to make sense either. Our bodies and our minds are intimately connected. Each one affects the other. Sometimes, you know, you will notice that you recall a past memory or perhaps a fearful event um, in your mind and you find your body reacting. Maybe you get a cold shiver or you, 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 um, you start to cry simply because of something that you have recollected, recalled with your mind. Our sensory receptors, our smells, tastes, touches are activated by familiar stimuli in our environment. So maybe when you walked in here this evening, you smelled something, or you saw someone that looked familiar, that reminded you of something. All of these things are somehow and in some way connected. And the scripture often speaks of the mind as being the place where we plan our actions. It is also the mind where we actually choose to sin. We use our minds to pray even as we are led by the Spirit in that action. We receive revelation and understanding from God through the Spirit, but we interact with that truth through the mind. We are transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and our minds play a role in that as well. So while we are led by the Spirit, it is with our minds that we engage, that we think, that we choose um, as we live our lives from day to day. We are an amazing creation. And the physical body interacting with the immaterial, with the mind, with the Spirit, um, that's what we are. We are physical beings designed to be in this intimate communion with the very creator of the universe who is spirit as it says in John chapter 4 and that's how we were created 
But as we now in our story, as we engage with the story of the gospel, um, and we try to track what our story has been, we know that humanity at one point fell. And the consequences of our disobedience to God is felt every day, both spiritually and physically, as well as in our minds. The Gospel tells us that um, we were born with a fallen nature. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are, in a sense, crucified with Him. He gives us His Spirit. We then put on His righteousness. And then spiritually, we sit at the right hand of God Almighty. And there is a transformation that happens in the spiritual realm. But from this point on, remembering that we are on the unity of these three parts, we now start living transformed lives. Being transformed and sanctified to the image of Christ. And this is a journey where we deal with the habits, with the thought patterns, the biological tendencies, or what also called the predispositions that we have that are as a result of the old self. And while we acknowledge that God can miraculously change us in an instant, this sinful flesh doesn't disappear because you have been given a new life. But change is now possible, whereas before it was not. Um, and this picture uh, tries to explain that. You know, Paul writes in Romans chapter seven, where he says, um, chapter seven, verses twenty-four. He says, "What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death?" Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So within us, when Christ comes and he lives in us, he influences us from the inside out, as it were. And so that is the journey that we walk. Our minds and the health of our, of our minds plays a very important role in our journey as followers of Jesus. And so we need to care for our minds. We need to look after um, the health that relates to our thoughts, our emotions, those aspects of, of who we are as well. One of the last points I, I want us to consider again, as, as mentioned earlier, is that unfortunately there is a lot of stigma that is attached to and around mental illness. And this often times stands in the way of us asking for help. Um, it stands in the way of us um, or others finding treatment, getting medication, or simply just support because you look and you sound weak if you ask for help when it comes to issues that are related to that. And so what happens is people end up feeling isolated. And this then just compounds the issue and it makes it worse and worse. 
And so because mental health isn't viewed as this medical problem in the same way that I went to the doctor when I wasn't feeling well, when my chest started closing up, I also need to go and see someone when I'm not feeling well in my mind. When I detect that, you know, I think I need to, f I need to speak with someone about this issue that is affecting my emotions, it's affecting how I relate to my family members, how I relate to my friends. Those are valuable and important aspects of our health as well. And the gospel speaks to it too. Now on the one hand, mental health has this immaterial aspect. But on the other hand, the brain is also a, a one and a half kilogram organ um, that's made up mostly of fat water, carbohydrates, and other juicy bits. Um, if you haven't had a smiley yet on, on that side, um, Kirk's not a fan, but the brains are actually the, the juiciest bit in the, in the head. Anyways, the, the, the brain is also just an organ. And so the brain also responds to medication. It's important that we take note of that, you know. Sometimes we are wrestling with something and there might actually be medication that might help us with that. Actually, in the, in the not-too-distant past, um, the abnormal thoughts and feelings and behaviors often associated with disorders were thought to be signs of personal weakness, madness, Insanity, we throw that word mad around like it doesn't even mean anything any longer. And in some cases, even demonic possession. Um, and, 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 it, and it was thought to be something to be ashamed of. And unfortunately, this is still a far too common perception, even in and around the church today. And this is not new, eh? Um, Jesus himself was thought to be out of his mind by his own family members, recorded in Mark chapter 3. Those were the words that they used. Jesus was thought to be raving mad and demon-possessed by Jewish leaders. People who witnessed him doing miracles, heard him preach, thought that he was crazy. In Acts chapter 26, Paul was accused of being mad. Um, and the early church in Corinth was thought to be out of their minds when unbelievers saw them speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So the stigma around this kind of thing has been around for a long time and the church hasn't been exempt from it either. Now what would people say of you if you had a season of mental disorder? And what's more, what would you say of someone else, one of your friends, who might be struggling with something? Would you be able to encourage them? What if you yourself were suffering depression? What would you say of someone who is struggling with mental health? How will you encourage them, support them? And hopefully next week we'll be able to look more at some of those issues and see how we can um, edu educate ourselves a little bit better about that. But as we draw to a close, right at the start there, Kirk read a beautiful psalm for us. Um, and I want to read another one to add to that. 
and it's Psalm 6. It's a Psalm of David. Um, and this is what it sounds like. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Hear me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is a psalm that was written by David. And in the psalm he calls out to God for mercy, for healing, for rescue. And David, as we read the psalm, will notice that he's clearly weary of the time that it is taking for God to deliver him from his present circumstance. He says, I am faint, he moans. He says, I am worn out from my groaning. He seems desperate and he begs God for help now. And, and in the psalm, he's, he declares that he cannot bear his pain any longer and he cries to God in, 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 in the verse there, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? You know what's interesting about many of the Psalms? More than half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. That means that they were written from a, from a place of pain. Um, from a place of people crying out to God. And this Psalm actually ends on a confident note with the Psalmist the writer now convinced after beating his heart that God has heard his cry and accepted his prayer. You know, it can be agonizing when it feels like God is taking a really long time to rescue us from the suffering that we find ourselves in, even if it involves mental health. But as this psalm reminds us, we can take comfort in knowing that God is always there. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And we can cry out to him and he will hear us and he will respond to us in his perfect time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the amazing way in which you have created us. You have made us to be so complex so complicated yet within all of the complexity that you have made us we thank you lord that even in within all of that 
we still find ourselves able to come before your throne of grace. We thank you for the freedom that you have given us to choose. That even now we can choose to be followers of you. That the minds that you have given us gives us this freedom of choice. And so we acknowledge this evening, Father, that as we follow you, there is this amazing grace that you show towards us, that you direct towards us, Father. And so, Lord, we ask that, that even as some of us here might find ourselves in the place, in the position of the psalm writers this evening, who cry out to you, where are you, God? We thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that within you there is healing, within you there is comfort, within you joy can be found. And so, Lord, as we enter into this new week, as we step out to face um, the good works that you have prepared for us in advance to step into, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be guiding us, leading us, that you would be giving us wisdom, that you would allow us to draw close to you, that you would come and mold us ever more into the shape of Jesus. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.